0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was... Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? It's not the easiest uh, passage to read and grasp immediately what is being said. But as we look at this, it is the, the whole idea of it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the glory that the ministry of the Holy Spirit brings. And what Paul is doing here is contrasting the glory of the old covenant with the glory of the new. So there's a couple of things we're going to have to do, first of all, before we get into this in, in any depth. And that's define what we mean by covenant covenant. What is a covenant? Covenant theology is absolutely essential to understanding the big picture of the Bible. The important thing about a covenant is that it's not a contract, it's a promise between people, very much like a marriage. I've been listening to some of Matt Chandler's sermons, and he's stressing this point just now continually that uh, a marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant and a covenant being a promise between people and a covenant in the, in the Bible is a covenant between God and his people. And it's not a covenant between two equal parties. There's a king, there's an authority, there's a, a ruler and that is God. And then there are the people. Now God's relationship with his people is covenantal. And we see that in so many different ways, but the one that 's being referred to here is the covenant in the Old Testament between uh, God and his people in the time of Moses. And you see there on exodus twenty four i 'm not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, there are two parts to the covenant it's very, this is a very very simple explanation of covenant and for those of you who are covenant theologians and who understand and know a whole lot more than this, I know there 's a lot more to it, but this is just a very basic Understanding, and I think it comes from Exodus 24. First of all, in in verse 7, there's first of all a book. He took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. There was a written down law. There were the the Ten Commandments written in stone. There was the law that was given to Moses. It was the, the book of the law, and that is to be a key part in the Old Testament and in the history of the Old Testament and the covenant relationship between God and his people then and it's what Paul refers to here. But the second is in the next verse, verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And that for us culturally is a difficult thing to understand and to grasp the whole idea of blood ritual and what's involved in that is uh we, we might use the expression uh thicker than blood or thicker than water blood is thicker than water we're talking about you have a blood relationship you're of the same blood your children are of the same blood and so blood is is seen as vitally important in in who we are physically and who we are relationally and so you'd speak of your, well, you might not speak of it this way, but your blood family. There might be other families that you have. You might have a spiritual family. Uh, you could be uh, adopted and so on. But your blood family is, you're tied together by the same, if you like, genetic uh, makeup. Now, in the Old Testament, the whole idea of relationship is tied in with that blood and uh, it's tied to the whole idea of forgiveness, a broken relationship needing restored, a blood covenant between God and His people. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's a key part of the old covenant and it's a key part of the new covenant as well. So when we use those terms, when we're talking about covenant, we're talking about the the old covenant, we're talking about the new covenant, we're talking about a promise which is uh, something that has a book and involves blood as well. Now the other word that's used here is the idea of glory and that's a really, really hard thing to define. Uh, I have to be kind of careful here, i got my Greek advisors to tell me how to say this so I hope I get it right. I was going to say doxa, but it's not. We get doxology. It's dotha, I think. Close? No, not really. <laughs> Never mind. Doxa in English. In English, Greek, it's doxa. Uh, if, it's, if you want Greek, Greek, speak to the Greeks. Okay? To the Greek, I became as a Greek. To the Scots, I became as a Scot. So it's doxa in Scottish. And uh, the, that idea of glory. Now, it's, as you read through this passage, you may, you, these verses, you may think, oh, no, no, there's um, glory, glory. I don't really understand what's going on here but it's all about glory. When do we use the term glory or glorious? How is it, what does it mean? Well I went away and looked up lots of different dictionary definitions as as well as some of the original languages and came up with a, a whole bunch of different things that are trying to get this picture. One is of magnificence, it's glorious, another is of great beauty, great fame. Or great honor won by notable achievements. Andy Murray, for example, glorious achievement in winning Wimbledon. Or uh, if you're a football fan, if you're a Manchester United fan, they have a song that they sing, Glory, Glory, Man United. That's the kind, though very, very pure and pale, idea of what is involved. It's something that is beautiful, something that is magnificent, something That is because of who the person is or what they have done. Ryrie says this, what is the glory of God? It is the manifestation of any or all of his attributes. In other words, it is the display of God in the world. We have sometimes very pathetic images of God. And we have sometimes very low expectations of God because we don't see his glory. I tell you this, if we knew God's glory and if we saw God's glory, then worship wouldn't be a problem. Praise wouldn't be a problem. Prayer wouldn't be a problem. Service wouldn't be a problem. But we don't see. And that's a huge part of what is involved in here. We need to see the glory of God. Now Paul is recognizing that because remember he's coming into a situation which is pretty nasty. It's Christians who are fighting amongst one another, Christians who are moaning, Christians who are having a go at him and questioning his ministry. He himself is conscious of his own sin. He says, I'm the chief of sinners and it's just messy and it's just horrible. And in in trying to to deal with this situation, he kind of lifts himself immediately out of the self-defensive mode, which he has to go. He talks about Christ, and then he says, listen, you need to grasp and understand that this is about the glory of God. Anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament would have some idea of what that meant going into the temple and experiencing the glory of God. And I think for us today we are we really really struggle with that. We are oppressed, we are depressed, we are discouraged, we are embattled and so much of it is because we don't grasp and we don't see the glory of God. And a lot of what we do as Christians and a lot of what we do in the church comes across as superficial, as trite, not as glorious and magnificent and beautiful and extraordinary, but somehow something that's just so small. Our God is so small. So we're going to look at that. Um, Now, what Paul does is he He writes a commentary, kind of like a Hebrew commentary, on Exodus 34, verses 29 to 32. And those words should come up just now, I think. If Adelina put them on for me, thank you. Because my pointer is broke Yeah. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant And they were afraid to come near him but Moses called to them so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them afterwards all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai now it is this passage what we've got in second Corinthians 3 verses 7 actually on to verse uh, 18 to the end of the chapter is Paul's commentary on this text. It's kind of Paul's sermon on this text. So it's a really, really good sermon. So you can say tonight, when you go away, I heard a great sermon, not my sermon. You heard the sermon that Paul preached to the Corinthians as we look at this through the text. So let's go on and look at verse seven. There are three contrasts he makes. The first is the ministry of death versus the ministry of the spirit. Now, if the ministry that brought Death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory. Fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now you'll notice what he's saying. You have to be really careful when you look at this. He's saying the ministry that came through Moses was glorious. Not that it was bad, but it was glorious. It was so glorious that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone and people were scared. They were scared because of the glory that they saw in the face of Moses. And yet, Paul says, that ministry brought death. Why did God give a ministry that brought death? Well, if the law was glorious, what is being, what, what is being said here? What is being said is that God gave the law because it reflects his nature. Leviticus 18 verse five, keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. He says, these are my decrees, they are my laws. Paul in Galatians 3:24 says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And what the Bible's teaching about the law that God gives to us, the law that's written in our hearts, the law that's written down in the book, is that that law serves to show us how crooked we are. It's the straight line. It's the plumb line. It's the ruler. It's the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Now, what's really important here, again, and I keep saying that's really important, but it, it is to grasp this, is we reverse that. We take our standards, our feelings, our collective morality, our individual morality. We think we are straight. We think we are right. We are moral and righteous, and we judge God by that, but the Bible tells us God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. And so is his law, not you or I. That's why Deuteronomy 27:26 says cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. It's why Ezekiel 36:26 says to us indicates to us we won't obey the law because we have a heart of stone and it says I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So here's here's the rub. If you're like most people who profess to be Christians you will think that the Bible comes and tells you how to live a good life how to be good and that's what makes you a Christian I don't want to pick on him but because he's the most public figure who's done this recently our Prime Minister David Cameron talks about there's some good things in the Bible that will help us we need to obey them but with all due respect to the Prime Minister he he hasn't grasped what the Bible is about. The Bible doesn't come along as a a moral code book that says, now do this and everything will be fine. It comes along as God's holy, just and righteous law and shows us what we are like, that we can do it, we can't obey it, we can't keep it. And it it shows us, in, in, in that sense, it brings death. It is the ministry of death. The ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone. Yes, it's glorious. It's glorious, but it's a killer. It's an absolute killer. Moralistic religion is an absolute killer, even when the morals it says are good and even when the God it points to is good. Because if it doesn't change us, it condemns us. And Paul says there's that ministry of death and then there's the ministry of the Spirit. Now, for those of you who are wide awake and very astute, you're saying, wait a minute. Wasn't the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Are you saying the Holy Spirit was only in the New? That doesn't make sense. Well, indeed he was. Numbers 11 verse 25. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took of the Spirit that was on him and put the Spirit on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who'd been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there in the, New- in the Old Testament from the beginning, from creation the Holy Spirit, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit, of course, is there. But in terms of the ministry, and in terms of the church, and in terms of God's blessing, in the Old Testament church, that was not an abiding presence. It was not the gift and the fullness of the Spirit that we have in the New Testament. So, this first contrast is between The law, the moral law, the mosaic law, the coded law, the written-down law, engraved in letters on stone, glorious though it is, doesn't make us righteous, it just shows us how rotten we are. Only the Holy Spirit can make us righteous. So that takes us on to the second contrast, verse 9. Paul talks about the ministry that condemns versus the ministry that brings righteousness. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And in Romans 10 verse 4 he says this, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. An end there is in the sense of purpose. Now again Paul is making a very simple and a very straightforward contrast. If you want to rely on obeying the Bible as a moral law if you want to rely on obeying the Bible as a ceremonial law, as a religious law, if you want to think, well, the Bible says, led by the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll be fine, then what you are doing is you're setting up a standard which means that God will be against you. The law is God against us, or actually it's us against God, and therefore we are God's enemies. But the gospel is Emmanuel, God with us God for us God changing us God forgiving us the needle one of the the old Puritans puts it this way the needle of the law is followed by the thread of the gospel the office of the law is to show us the disease the office of the gospel the purpose of the gospel is to bring us the cure now we still have the law we would still teach the law Uh, We're still convicted, I hope, by what God's word says to us, but we should be broken. We should be saying, wait a minute, I can't do this. I just can't live by the standard that God requires. And in that, if you understand that and if you grasp that, you immediately realize what is wrong with religion, religion on its own, a religion which says, do this and you will live and people think, yeah, I can do that, but they do not understand how deep and how holy and how righteous and how profound the law of God is. And so we, we end up with this nightmare that religion has brought into the world. The point of God's law is to make us aware of our illness so that we would seek the cure. And that takes us on to the third thing. Paul talks about the ministry that fades away versus the ministry which lasts. Uh, That's at verse 10. What was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Now there was a glory that was seen in Moses in his face. In fact, in in the Old Testament, the idea there is that they could not look upon Moses' face because it was shining so much. His face was recharged every time he went into the presence of God. Now imagine how weird that would be. Imagine if I went through the library there and prayed and I came back and my face was shining. You would all completely freak out Um, and that's, that's what happened with Moses it was just it was just incredible his face literally shone um, it's interesting that the the Hebrew word Quran means emitting rays and beams and it comes from the word which is comes from horn and the Latin Vulgate says horned and it explains something to me that I never ever understood um, maybe you're not into this but uh, Michelangelo has a very famous statue of Moses. If you go on the next one, you can see this. Um, some of you may recognize it now what 's wrong with Why is that a statue of Moses? Why is it weird? Because Moses has horns. I always thought, why did Moses ha- have horns? Why did he paint him with horns? And all that Michelangelo was doing was using the Latin Vulgate and it said Moses was horned, so he just, he, he pictured him. With that, to, to, to indicate this idea of strength and of beauty You can still uh, go and see that So the next time you're there You'll be able to explain to all the tourists who are around uh, That you, you know why it, it, it says uh, horned Can we go back to the, the verses there? I don't want to leave good old Horn Moses there um, The glory The old covenant glory brought The old covenant brought death But it was glorious, and Moses' face shone. But his face shining didn't last forever. It wore out, it faded away. That's the implication, at least, of what Paul is saying here. And I think it's the implication of what's taught in Exodus. The new covenant glory never, ever fades. There's a song. Um, I've even forgotten R E M, shiny happy people. You know, that think, well, Christians are shiny happy people. Well, they are if they put on their blusher, but it's it's this idea that Moses, that, that Paul has of something that just doesn't fade away. There are those who think that. Jesus Christ is not the end, that there's something more. So, for example, the Mormons. Um, it's very interesting just now. There's a Mormon bishop from Sweden, Hans Matson, who's gone viral all over, the, all over YouTube. Because he said he began to sit down and look at what other people were saying about Mormonism and looking on YouTube and, and the internet. And he just thought, this is all rubbish. And he started expressing his doubts. This is all rubbish. And uh, there's a, been a big discussion about Mormonism. But the, the key thing about Mormonism is this, the Mormons say, yeah, we've got an additional testament. It wasn't enough about Jesus. He had to go to America and he had to do this and he had to do that and give us the book of Mormon. So the gospel that Paul mentions here wasn't sufficient. It faded. We needed something more. What about Islam? Muslims if they know the Quran will recognize Isa Jesus as one of as the greatest of the prophets actually that's what it says but they say he's not the last they say Muhammad is the last Jesus is not enough did mormonism or mohammedanism islam improve upon christianity not at all in our culture we have what we might want to call modernism where we say we don't need God, we can do without God, we've, we've advanced beyond that, we've evolved beyond that, we don't need God anymore. It's a poet from the 19th century, Algernon Charles Swinburne, who wrote a poem, Glory to Man in the Highest, for man is the master of things. Is that true? I don't, even for a minute, think that's even remotely possible. And today too There are people in the Christian church who say It was great that we had Jesus It was great that Jesus came and hallelujah and praise Jesus But we need to have miracles right now To prove everything Because it's not enough But is that right Sometimes I watch and hear These kind of glory crusades And glory miracles And I believe in a God who works miracles But I don't see Much glory now here, Paul tells us, and he's telling the Corinthians, don't go back to the old ways. Don't be trying to take away or to add on to Jesus Christ. The old covenant has gone. Matthew eleven thirteen. for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Christ has put an end to the ministry of Moses. We learn much from the law. But when you get people asking, as they inevitably do, well, if you're a Christian, why do you eat shellfish? And why don't you live by the Old Testament law? They've got it so wrong. They think it's such a smart question and it's such a dumb question because you say the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That written code engraved in letters on stone, it came with glory, but all it did was condemn. We've got something much, much better. Think about this aspect of fading You buy a brand new car And it's got that brand new car smell uh, inside it But within a couple of years It's going to be smelling old Or a new coat of paint that you've just given A fence or a shed or something And it's there and it looks fantastic But it's going to fade those of you who are into painting your fingernails, not me, so I can't use that as an illustration but you, you um, uh, from my extensive knowledge of fingernail painting, you paint your fingernails and they chip and they fade and you need to redo them. Or your hair colouring, again not particularly relevant to some of us but if you need to change your, your hair colour and you die, what, what a glorious red that is. And then within a couple of weeks, it's faded, the kind of ginger, and you don't want to join the ginger, so you go and get it something else. It fades. Or think of the light on the the screen in here. Um, When the natural light goes down, then you'll be able to see the projected light a whole lot more. Why? Because the natural light is so much stronger than the projected light. It's like uh, I once heard a man describing people who boasting about their knowledge and how they could question God and so on. They're like someone who's got a torch and shining it up to the sun and saying, I'm taking you on, I can beat you. You can't. The glory of the law in the face of Moses fades before the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of the law in the face of Moses faded, but we have been given, to, given an inheritance that can never fade. First Peter one three. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's to be re- ready to be revealed in the last time. Have you ever had your hopes fade away? You're hoping for something, you're longing for something, you've set your heart on something, you've got great hope for it, and it's you think, and it just fades, it just goes away. And there are far too many of us who think like that when it comes to the gospel. We know about Jesus, we hear about Jesus, we love Jesus, we commit ourselves to Jesus, we have great hopes and our hopes are dashed. We are like the early disciples who followed Jesus, who gave up everything to follow him, who followed him for three years, who watched him perform miracles, listened to him preach and teach wonderful things, saw the tremendous depth and beauty of his character and then he went and died them. And they were shattered. They were utterly devastated. What Paul says here is the glory of Jesus Christ never fades. The promise of Jesus Christ never goes away. Forget Mormons. Forget Mohammed. Forget all these extra and additional prophets. Jesus Christ is the end. He's the purpose. He's the fulfillment. You will never have anything more glorious and you don't need someone to shine light on Jesus Christ. I love what Matthew Henry says. He says, the gospel is always fresh, always flourishing, and remains that way. It's like having a battery that never runs down. Now, what's the relevance of all of this? Do we need a history lesson? I think the relevance of all of this is is very straightforward and it should be obvious. I'll speak for myself. You can apply this to yourself as you understand. I find it very, very easy to live under the old covenant. I find it very easy to be like the Galatians, returning to do this and you shall live. I find it very easy to um, become like in Hebrews. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, where... In warning about turning away from the gospel. And the whole of Hebrews is a warning about turning away from the gospel. Two Christians, he says this, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There is a warning for us in this. There's a ministry that fades away, there's a ministry that lasts, there's a ministry that condemns, a ministry that brings righteousness, there's a ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit. And we have to decide what we are going to do. We have to decide how, which we are going to accept, how we are going to live. Now he'll go on and we'll come to this uh, at a future date. We'll look at the rest of this at a future date. He'll go on to talk about the ministry of the Spirit and what that comes in. But I kind of want to finish all this by asking what our ministry is. Is it one of condemnation or salvation? Is it fading or eternal and in glory? Is it of death or of glory? We need to grasp a key New Testament principle here. All of us operate on the principle of fading glory. We think we start bright and we do what we can to stop running it down. We, or to stop it running it down. No, to stop it running down. That's what I'm trying to say. We have this notion that You know, God comes in revival or renewal and then it's kind of downhill all the way and we're trying to preserve and strengthen the things that remain. In the church, we're always seeking to conserve. If things are going well, why change it? But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is one of constant renewal. We might say, we've had a great year, glorious services, wonderful things. Let's try and get that back. Let's try and repeat that. Because in the world we live in, most things begin brightly and then fade. But in the gospel, the gospel begins brightly and increases in glory. In chapter four, verse 16, it says this, therefore we do not lose heart though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The great principle here is God is doing a glorious work and we needn't be afraid that it's going to fade and disappear, it's going to be added to and grow and develop. Thomas Akempis wrote, how swiftly passes any of the world's glory. We need to think about the glory of Jesus Christ and the beauty of Jesus Christ and the glory of God and the holiness of God. Supposing I won a Nobel Prize tomorrow, be glorious. Supposing I suddenly turned into, by some miracle, the next Andy Murray and won the, you know, the New York Open or whatever. Wouldn't it be glorious? Supposing you became a film star, wouldn't it be glorious? Supposing whatever, there's a hundred, those are the kind of ridiculous things, but there are other things that you set your heart on for glory and all of it will fade. It's not just your nails and your hair that will fade, but all the glories that we seek for ourselves will fade. But the glory of Jesus Christ will never, ever fade. Some people say, well, are you saying that the glory of Jesus Christ is dependent on us, that we have to glorify him and magnify him, and if we don't, he won't be? No, C.S. Lewis put it really well. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Typical Lewis, very, very astute. I'm not going to worship God. Do you think that takes away from his glory? Not at all. It's a song that um, people mock because it was sung so much shine Jesus shine but actually it reflected a good biblical truth let's return to that definition of glory we gave at the beginning something magnificent something of great beauty something of great fame or honor won by normal notable achievements the oxford english dictionary then adds on to that something very enjoyable. The glory of God is something that is very enjoyable. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. We are to worship him and give thanksgiving to him. Chambers' definition of it says it's widespread praise, an object of supreme pride, splendor, beauty, resplendent brightness, and then goes on to say the presence of God. That's what the glory of God is. It's his presence. Spurgeon says, there is nothing little about God. And Jerry Bridges says, the reverent godly Christian sees God first in his transcendent glory, majesty, and holiness before he sees him in his love, mercy, and grace. You and I are far too quick to say, Lord, give me that love. Give me that mercy. Give me that grace. Get the holiness and the glory. and That's wonderful, 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 wonderful. But... Let me. You need to see the glory and the holiness and the beauty and the majesty of God Because otherwise it's just all a waste It's rubbish It's people playing at religion It's mucking around I think personally I probably long for that more than anything else A sense of the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. An old Syriac Christian, John the Elder of Dalthea, says this. This is, I think, from around the third century Your door is open, Lord, and no one is entering. Your glory is revealed, but no one pays attention. Your light shines in the pupils of our eyes, but we are not willing to see. Your right hand is extended, ready to give, but there is no one who takes from it. How tragic that is that God in all his glory is present in Jesus Christ, is present through the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit, is present through his word, is present in his creation, is present in our lives, and we shut our eyes, we close our hearts, we pull our hands back and we moan and we complain, Lord, where are you? Your door is open, Lord, and no one is entering. Your glory is revealed, but no one pays attention. Hebrews thirteen twenty, which I'll say, uh, the benediction at the end says this, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice the words, the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of Moses, on the animals, the sacrificial system in Leviticus was not the eternal covenant. It didn't last forever. It faded. The blood of Jesus lasts forever. The lamb who was slain is in the midst of the throne. And his blood is sufficient and avails for me and for you through all eternity. And because of that, we can bring glory to Jesus Christ. We pathetic creatures in god's eyes in so many ways yet we can bring glory to jesus because of what jesus has done for us it is a it's a fantastic and wonderful and glorious image let's pray that god would would reveal his glory to us and we would be conscious of his glory and filled with his glory and none of us would want to return to the miserly, beggarly elements of religion and none of us would be so caught up in ourselves and our self-absorption that we wouldn't be able to open our eyes and behold the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We long to see your glory We long to know your glorious presence We confess, oh God, that so often we come to you And we judge you by our standards How arrogant and how ignorant We acknowledge that We confess also that at times over us There is a heaviness, there is a cloud That cloud that Cowper spoke of The frowning providence Lord, help us see the smiling face Help us to see the sun. Help us to know the glory. It's easy for us to give up. It's easy for us to rely on ourselves and find ourselves weak and inadequate. But help us, oh God, just to look into your face and to see your glory and to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas corg Thanks for listening.